Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, welcome to No Man's Land. Now, over the last few years, one of the most important stories in politics has been the issue of realignment. This has been perhaps most prominent in the Conservatives winning the so-called Red Wall in 2019. But now there is talk of a Conservative Blue Wall coming under threat. To discuss what the Blue Wall is, if it is anything, we are joined by Robert Evans. Welcome, Robert. Please introduce yourself. Hello, Martin. Hello, Steve. Yeah, I'm Robert Evans. I'm a councillor in Stanwell, a Labour councillor for Surrey County Council. Uh, and I used to be an MEP for London from 1994 to 2009. So uh, been kicking around politics for a number of years now. So um, thanks for coming on, Robert. Um, now, I'm, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm, I'm from Surrey, so I'm in from South England. So I'm particularly interested in your experiences as a Labour councillor in, in the South and in, in Surrey. Um, so I wonder if we could start there. What, or how would you describe your experience uh, as a councillor in Surrey, as opposed to, I imagine, anywhere else? Well, my experience in Surrey is markedly different from when I was elected as a Euro MP, which was for Brent Harrow and Hillingdon. So uh, urban London area, very multicultural, a lot of different issues from being a councillor in Surrey. Um, And obviously a lot more Labour voters in Brent, Brent like Labour Council for a number of years, Harrow up until recently has been Labour, Hillingdon has had a strong Labour uh, base as well. Surrey, the Labour base has not disappeared, but it's it's diminished over the years. My old dad was on Surrey County Council in the 1970s when Labour were the opposition with something like 18 seats. Well, uh, we're two now. We were for a number of years down to one, but we've doubled it to two. So we have um, representation. We've got representation on a lot of the councils uh, around Surrey, but it's obviously we're uh, minor party, not even probably the third party in Surrey, perhaps fourth party after residents and independents. So it's a different game, but um, my politics are the same. It's just in a different environment. And the the way Martin set up the, the conversation, of course, is that we talk about political realignment a lot, and we've talked about the Red Wall, which used to be very strong Labour areas becoming more conservative. Have you noticed any changes over the last few years, so I guess we're going back to 2016, have you noticed anything changing in your area since then? Oh yes, because the the Labour Party's been through different phases Um, and I've been a councillor with Ed Miliband as leader of the Labour Party, then Jeremy Corbyn uh, and now with, with Keir Starmer and yeah, as I said uh, this time last year we gained an extra seat in on Surrey County Council and we had a couple of narrow misses, one in Woking and one in Epsom. 
um, where we nearly won a seat on an extra seat on the county council. So with a, I think if it were held this year, we would have had perhaps half a dozen Labour seats on Surrey County Council, but um, we are two at the moment. And the changes have been, uh, over the period that I've been a County Council, reflective of Labour's position nationally, because for most of the period of Ed Miliband's time, we were still in the, if not backlash, but aftermath of the end of the, the Blair-Brown governments from ten, uh, and the coalition Tory Liberal coalition running the country. Um, and then we had Labour's period of Jeremy Corbyn as leader, which uh, didn't really work with the electorate, if I'm perfectly honest. And we had a very bad election result in 2019, as you know. And since then, we've been rebuilding and re-engaging with the electorate. And that's beginning to show quite noticeably. And you mentioned the different Labour leaders. Should we think of it, and I'm, I'm you know, caricaturing a bit here, but the south of England is perceived as being not as left-wing, say, as London or as the some parts of north of England, traditionally economically speaking left-wing. So should we perceive it as a, a more centrist Labour leader or Labour campaign would do better? Or, or is it more complicated than that? I mean, you, you seem to imply that Corbyn put them off. Was it just because he was on the on the left? No, I think it was it was more than that. I don't think it was just a left uh, uh, right issue. I think it was the credibility. And I know Jeremy Corbyn and he's a decent, honourable man. But I think, to being fair, he wasn't equipped to be prime minister just as a generation ago. Michael Foote, a great socialist, a great Labour Party man, wasn't perceived as a prime minister by the people. And there's a lot to that in a general election as being seen to be a candidate for prime minister with gravitas, looking the heart, behaving like the part with a track record. And Jeremy wasn't grooming himself for prime minister over the years. So um, it all came unstuck really, as far as he was concerned. Uh, but we've turned the corner now, I think. And Keir Starmer is a very credible, he's from Surrey as well. He was born and brought up in, in Oxted. So um, I'm not sure if there's been a Surrey prime minister before. So I don't think I'll have to look at that one. Um, but I think, you know, Keir Starmer is not, I've been perfectly honest, he's not yet a, a positive on the doorstep in the way that people were saying I'm voting for Tony Blair, but they're not saying they're not voting because of the Labour leader, whoever it might be. And they've, you know, but then for years I've campaigned on the doorsteps and people saying I'm not voting Labour while Neil Kinnock's leader, or I'm not voting for that Tony Blair, or I don't like Gordon Brown. You know, there's some people who use anything as an excuse um, and perhaps they weren't going to vote Labour anyway. But I think at the moment, as some of the results show, we're moving in the right direction and still, you know, two years away from a general election. Yeah, I mean, Keir Starmer doesn't seem to, to me, scream anything other than sort of decency and kind of credibility, really. I mean, I, I know some people feel he's not that exciting. But if you, if I just come in on that, yeah. you see that if you look, there's almost a pattern, an up-down curve of politics in this country is that after charismatic leaders, the country often goes for somebody who might be almost a complete contrast. At the end of the war, Churchill was the charismatic leader, but they went for Attlee. Um, uh, later on, after Macmillan and Douglas Hume, they went for Harold Wilson, who was the new exciting one. After Wilson, they went for Heath, who could be described as a bit dull and boring. Um, after Mrs Thatcher, they went for John Major, who you know didn't exactly ooze charisma, but actually, you know, history would be quite kind to uh, John Major, I think. Um, and then 
then there was the Tony Blair era after Blair. Um, we, we, we went to Brown uh, after Cameron, who had a, you know, was a different sort of politician. They went to Theresa May and now we've got Boris Johnson. So I think if you're looking at it as a curve going up and down to charisma, rather staid figures, I think you'd find that um, Keir Starmer would fit into that up down curve quite well. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, I'm a bit aware we're preempting some of Martin's questions in a minute, so I might take us in a slightly different direction. Um, the area that you uh, represent in Surrey is um, a bit different to how I think people imagine um, much of the kind of home counties, and I'm thinking of the sort of image of leafy kind of places, and it, I was going to say leafy suburbs, but I, don't, I actually mean more like sort of countryside. Um uh, how much do you think your experience there reflects the wider region? So we're sort of lumping the South of England together a little bit. Um, and is it useful now to sort of think of England regionally or English politics regionally, or, um, or, or are we just generalising too much or, or too little? Well, I, I think we do need to think of the country politics as regionally, but you can't draw the boundaries exactly because the area I represent, which is Stanwell, Stanwell Moor, and a bit of Ashford, which is my hometown where I was born, um, is very much more suburban London than rural Surrey. It's in Surrey administratively, but was, of course, Middlesex originally. And much of it was grew as a commuter to London and to workers for the airport. Um, yeah, the airport is not employing as many people as it was now. Um, but this is how southeast of England, um, very different from other parts of Surrey, you know, Hazelmere, Oxted, Cranley, Godalming, very different from Stanwell, Stanwell Moor, and Ashford. Um, but there is certainly a difference between the southeast of England and the northeast, the southwest. And I think it's also a big difference between towns uh, which have suffered a lot under current circumstances, towns and cities uh, and, and villages. So should I, and I'm going to hand over to Martin in a minute, but should we take make the obvious assumption and think that the more urban somewhere is, the more it's going to be a good opportunity for Labour to pick up council seats or or, or, or parliamentary seats is that is that always true or, or can Labour be competitive in some of these sort of slightly um, leafier areas too? Well I think this is where things are changing a bit yes Labour has traditionally been the party of the big cities increasingly London winning more and more seats in London Manchester Liverpool Bristol but if you notice um, last few years Labour's been uh, pretty strong in places like Exeter, Portsmouth, Southampton, which is always so. But now Worthing is now run by Labour, uh, Crawley um, and Southend, I think, has got a Labour council leader and council running the show there. So I think there is a change. And I think some of it is reflected by migration, demographic changes and the fact that increasingly a large number of our towns are not prospering. The shops are going, uh, and they're not the the got the community buzz that they used to have. Villages are probably very similar, or still losing shops, but a lot of towns are finding it really hard. In the southwest, in Cornwall, I know that is is true. Places on the Isle of Wight are finding it very hard, uh, and Labour is coming back as a, as a strength there. I think with the the Lib Dems struggling to to 
make a mark in some places so no that's really interesting and I, I i was about to ask you about any lessons from recent elections i spotted actually crawley I'm, I'm looking at one of those maps where you can see the the council seats that change hands i noticed that crawley had gone to labor and i thought that was an interesting one mm. um again near an airport actually a bit like your your seat yes yeah and very urban again crawley is i think crawley was a new town in the 1960s or so so um yeah, different from and quite a big place, Crawley as well. I don't know Crawley well. I have been there, um, so yeah. But I think you know you you, you mentioned about uh, Keir Starmer, uh, and I think the same would be true of the Lib Dems. You know, a lot of people don't know who the Ed Davey is, who's leader of the Liberal Democrats. But does it matter? Does it really matter at the moment in the present climate that people are uh, the strength is that they're not Boris Johnson, and that I think is. Um, a powerful message at the moment as well. That's a good time for me to come in, if I may. Yeah. So, um, essentially, can Labour win more council parliamentary seats in the South? If it can, what, how, what should its strategy be? Is this just a case of the dislike of Boris Johnson and Brexit um, and a particular set of circumstances? Or is this something more long-term to move in uh, potentially away from the Conservatives? I, I think we don't know that for certain yet at the moment, because obviously Boris Johnson is the man in position at the moment. And uh, if he weren't, would things change dramatically? I think any other Conservative leader would be doing better than he uh, at the moment, because I think he's lost all his credibility with, with the public. Um, but the issues, many of the issues would still be the same, whoever was the leader of the Conservative Party. Now, the last couple of years have been impacted by COVID. Of course they have. They've been impacted by Brexit, which has got very much Boris Johnson's fingerprints all over it. And the last few months we've been influenced um, or affected by the fallout from the war in Ukraine. But the cost of living crisis is really hitting people. The price of fuel um, and other impacts that people are feeling round and about, that the cuts that have been uh, austerity cuts, really meaning that roads aren't repaired, there aren't enough places in the schools, you can't get an appointment with your local GP. These are all things which have been gnawing away at people. Um, and uh, yeah, if, you, if they stop and think, or it's at the back of their mind all the time, that things aren't as, as the way they perceive they used to be. Or, um, and obviously, the government gets the blame and the Prime Minister gets the blame. So do you think that Labour essentially can or must go beyond the sort of waiting for the current government to sort of fall apart? Do they need to just bring more attention to things like austerity, to normal everyday kind of, essentially, I suppose, bread and butter, you know, that, that you can't get an appointment in the GP, that the potholes in the roads are not getting fixed. Is like is that their route to victory, do you think? Well, I think it's a combination of the factors. But remember, I think it's true that oppositions don't usually so much win elections. Usually, governments lose them. People don't say, well, I think the government's doing really well at the moment, or the government's doing all right, but I think the opposition would do better. I think, you know, Boris Johnson's OK as a prime minister, but I think Keir Starmer would be better. No, they vote for a change because they're fed up with particular leader, 
the policies on block, uh, as it were. And to win an election in this country, and it's true very much in America and other places that are very much two-party systems, you have to have a leader who appeals not just to all his automatic supporters, the people who automatically vote for his or her party, but ones who are in the middle and ones who will switch over. Uh, Tony Blair obviously won elections by gaining a lot of former conservatives to vote Labour. And in American elections, you have uh, you know, Republicans voting for Biden or um, Democrats voting, Reagan Democrats. There were people who were uh, aligned to one political party, but when it came to the presidential, crossed the floor because they thought one particular candidate was stronger than the other. And I think we see and are seeing at the moment in local by-elections and other by-election results, a tendency for that in this country at the moment. So how do you think that Labour should essentially best capitalise on that? So when we had David Gork on, he suggested a, uh, a Labour politics that was not woke, but pro-climate, critical of Brexit and reassuring on the economy. Do you think that chimes with your experience of what is likely to be successful for Labour and whether that's realistic, that that could be the, the national party's way. I think it's going to be, it, be a challenge and you've got to be horses for courses, Martin. You mentioned three, three points there. You mentioned um, the environment, Brexit, and I can't remember what the third one you mentioned was. Um, reassuring on the economy. Right, yeah. You mentioned three points there, Martin, the environment, the economy uh, and Brexit. Yes, I think Labour's got to be very strong on the economy. Of course, it's got to be seen to be credible. And that was an issue that lost Labour votes in 2010. Rightly or wrongly, Labour was seen to have um, uh, run out of money. Um, on the environment, there's not many people. The number of people who are climate change deniers are few and far between. We've got to be strong on the environment. On Brexit, we need to be telling the truth on what's happening and, and how people are being impacted by Brexit. Uh, and it may be difficult at the moment to fully understand some of the consequences of Brexit because of um, fallout from, from COVID. And there are still a lot of people, Labour voters and people who want to be Labour voters or people we want to vote Labour, who still think Brexit was a great idea. I don't. And the fallout, I think, from it is causing problems to, to the UK, UK economy. Now, we will need, Labour will need to be careful not to just hammering everything as Brexit at fault, because um, not sure that people necessarily want to be told that, that they made a catastrophic mistake. Uh, it's happened and we've now got to make the best of it. But on some things, we've got to really work harder at uh, conversation, dialogue, cooperation with the other countries in the European Union and certainly our near neighbours, France. And do you think that Labour in its current incarnation is brave enough to take stance on, especially Brexit? I mean, as you say, reassuring on the economy, well, how you are reassuring on the economy is a slightly different matter. And being in favour like, favor of action on the climate, well, as you say, most people are in favour of uh, action on the 
climate and not climate change deniers. Labour has been accused of feigning to take positions, of not wanting to talk about Brexit, of trying to dodge the issue. Is it necessary to be braver to tackle some of these issues, even when there's the risk of putting some votes off? I think we're now moving into an era where some people are beginning to accept that Brexit wasn't the great example uh, or, or the great um, answer to what our problems that we were told it was going to be. You know, we were told take back control and people had the view that the the challenge of immigration would be instantly solved. Well, we can see it hasn't been. Um, the, the pound has suffered and has fallen against the dollar. Now, you can argue maybe that was COVID, maybe it's the Ukraine crisis as well, but all of these things are linked together. And I think people are, we're moving on. It's now, what, six years since the referendum. It's three years since Brexit actually happened. Uh, people haven't seen any benefits from Brexit yet. They start to go on holiday, it's more difficult. Um, Travelling, working anywhere else, you know, we, and the problems, of course, in Northern Ireland are there every day and not going away. So um, I think Labour's got to be realistic on um, the EU, on Brexit. No point in just saying, well, you all made a mistake, because that is not what people want to hear. But you don't find many people who say, um, I voted to remain and now I should have voted, really, I think I should have voted leave. But you do encounter people who, um, actually they tend to keep quiet, the people who voted leave um, and now feel it was a mistake. But I think the opinion polls show that there's been a bit of a shift. Um, but there's also no point in talking about rejoining the EU either, because that's not what people want. I think people realise we've made the decision, now we've got to make the best of it outside the EU. Robert, you used the phrase horses for courses a minute ago, and I thought that was interesting. Um, do, do you think that when you're, when you're campaigning in the South, are you able to nuance bits of the national message because you know that the voters in your area or the voters you need to appeal to in your area are, are sort of perceiving it differently to voters in other areas? So Brexit might be a good example of where maybe, you know, stereotypically, should we say, people in the, um, the Red Wall um a supposedly fairly pro-Brexit in the South and more skeptical. So would there be more space to sort of start a conversation, say, there around, well, it's been done badly, for example. We should we shouldn't have done the Northern Ireland Protocol in the same way or things like that. Ch- do you get a chance to nuance the message in a way that's going to work in the region you're in, or is that just overtaken by the uh, No, I mean you they somebody said all politics is local, and that's certainly true. That you know, the message you would be talk giving if you were talking in, in St. Austell or uh Red Ruth Camborne down in Cornwall will be different from the message you'll be giving in the streets of London or or parts of Surrey, because uh, the the message applies differently in every area. Uh and whether you're talking about Brexit or the health service or anything else, it does vary where you are. And of course, if you're in an area with a Labour council, you've got to be careful not to criticise local issues because um, there could be ones of the Labour council. Where I'm councillor Stanwell, uh, the Conservatives run the council, but they are they're a minority. And most of the councils across Surrey are now run by non-conservative administrations because conservatives have lost control of they only control, I think, two out of um 
11 boroughs and districts in Surrey. So, uh, you know, it's not quite the true blue place that sometimes people think. Robert, as a uh, man with an interest in the history of the Labour Party, I'm sure you know that uh, southern discomfort is not something that is new for the Labour Party. Does Labour have the desire to win in the South again, do you think? Oh, yes, Labour certainly has the desire to win. But I think also we've got to recognise that um, voting patterns change. You know, Labour now wins in, as I said, Worthing earlier on, Canterbury, uh, and places that we haven't won before. But then there are places where we always used to win that we don't. You know, if you had said a few years ago, I think um, Labour will win Canterbury and Labour will win Worthing and the Conservatives will win uh, Tony Blair's old seat of Sedgefield and Dennis Skinner's old seat of Bolsover, people would think you were bonkers um, because they'd say that's not, not going to happen. And if I said to you, well, I think in a few years' time, Labour will win in Windsor and Labour will win in Guildford, people would say you were bonkers. But um, there have been changing patterns. I mean, I don't actually predict that Labour will win in Windsor or Guildford as it happens, but it would be about the same as if you said that Tony Blair's seat of Sedgefield, after he left it, 12 years on would turn blue to the Conservatives, people wouldn't have believed you, just wouldn't have believed you. And the same with them, some of them old mining areas, Stoke-on-Trent and Bishop Auckland, places like that. So voting patterns do change. People, different people move in. You know, the Greens have got a strong footing in, in Brighton, but not anywhere else. The Liberal Democrats used to uh, hold the Isle of Wight seat and now... They don't, didn't even stand there in the last general election. And if they did, they'd lose their deposit. So yeah, voting patterns do change and people, different people move in. But um, uh, the politics that people want does alter. So something that we've, um, we need to talk about as well is that there have been suggestions that Labour should allow the Lib Dems a free run at certain places. All there have been suggestions that an informal agreement has been reached whereby uh, the different parties will target their resources in certain ways. So do you think it is right that Labour stands aside in small areas to allow the council seat, perhaps a parliamentary seat, as we've seen um, with the Lib Dems pulling off the uh, by-election victory not too long ago? Or should it be broader, looking across all of Surrey or even all of the South? How true is that in different seats and different areas? It's a very complex question. It's not as, you know, we have two-party politics in this country, which doesn't work well with multi-parties, unless you're the Conservatives, who, when there are multi-parties, uh, have usually they've usually done well. For ex- In Surrey, for example, Conservatives get perhaps 40% of the vote, 45%, and then you find that Labour, Liberal Democrats, Greens and Independents or residents uh, pick up pick up the difference. And what's happened, certainly in some Spelthorne by-elections and elsewhere, is the opposition have looked at it and seen, well, if, if we stand, we might prevent the Greens or Liberals or Labour winning the seat. And so parties have not so much had an agreement or a pact at all, but just some sort of sensible um, use of resources. Now, you can't, though, assume 
you, that people are all going to vote one way. People who vote Liberal Democrat come from all different places and all different policies. And the same is probably true, even more so for the Greens. If Labour doesn't stand, probably their votes, Labour votes would go to Liberals, most of them, Liberals or Greens or people who'd stay at home. Um, if the Liberals didn't stand anywhere, it wouldn't mean that all of the people who voted Liberal would start to vote Labour. It does happen in, in some areas, but in Cambridge, for example, it's Labour and the Liberal Democrats who are fighting against each other. So the Liberal Democrats are the, the opposition to Labour there. So it's, it's an inexact science. But I think we will see in some of the local elections um, some sort of understanding of parties who are opposed to Conservatives playing the game that um, people will vote for anybody but Conservatives. And that's been said on the doorstep several times to me. With the two parliamentary by-elections coming up, it seems certainly true that Labour's, well, Labour will have a candidate in Holliton and Tiverton, but um, I don't think a huge amount of time and effort has been put in there. Labour's putting its effort into Wakefield, and I don't think the Liberal Democrats are really um, doing very much up, up there. So it's a sort of understanding, I think, that the Conservative government's credibility has collapsed and that we need to do everything possible to make sure that uh, they don't win seats. And if that means making a few sacrifices or uh, mellowing a bit in some areas, then so be it. So just to try to draw some of these together, as a former MEP, and we've touched a little bit on Brexit, mm. but could you give us a fuller sort of reflection on Brexit all the way through from the referendum to the sort of parliamentary goings-on before Johnson won his majority and whether you think that especially the right Remain side and some leavers as well I think whether they made a mistake by not backing a softer Brexit in the Theresa May days. Now I go back further than that Martin I look back to the time when I was an MEP and I was saying this at the time that we weren't as a nation selling the benefits or making ourselves seem as European as the other countries were. If you went to nearly any town in France, small towns, villages, as you approach the town or the village, there'd be a roundabout quite often with three or four flags flying. One of them would be the French flag, one of them would be the EU flag, and then they'd have the town flag or the region flag, and they would be all flying together. The EU flag was very rarely flown in this country, had to fight for it to be flown just on um, Europe Day, the 9th of May. And I remember the, uh, when I was an MEP, the council in Hillingdon, West London, which was conservative control, decided not to, voted not to fly the European flag um, on, on, on Europe Day. So we didn't really ever see ourselves as fully European. We didn't have the positive tony blair started to do it very well but he even he tailed off a bit and we started talking about red lines and um fighting for you in the eu as though it was a battle between them and us so into that vacuum stepped ukip and when they got meps they got funding from the european parliament as all uh, meps did uh and then they were able to use that funding to promote an anti-european message and when everything is not right in a country, people will look um, 
at a viable alternative and they'll believe things that perhaps in other times they wouldn't and you can only look in the 1930s in germany uh, to see see what happened there so uh, yeah brexit came along i was always concerned about the referendum and people saying oh no it'll be all right people will vote david cameron thought that it was going to go through easily i was always very very worried and not at all surprised that people voted to leave because i know people who if they perhaps stopped and i had a chance to really explain to them would have voted remain they voted leave and so um you know before brexit you could travel anywhere in europe on your passport right and up until the time it expires now the rules have changed and people will be finding out that their passport's got to have longer on it six months left on to on expiry um uh your european health insurance card won't work in future you may find that your ordinary british driving license is not valid in every european country um so there are a lot of impacts that we weren't told were going to happen or those of us who perhaps mentioned it were accused of scaremongering and you know, the value of the pound has fallen all the consumer rights protections that we used to get from the eu are going to be watered down um now we hear the government's even thinking of changing the European Convention on Human Rights. So, you know, it's all, I think, pretty depressing stuff, but we've got to try and make the most of it. You alluded to this a little bit at the end of um, what you were saying there, but of course, we're looking back on Brexit, but it feels quite present this week with the Northern Ireland Protocol row and uh, like you mentioned, the row about the EHRC, which of course is not part of the EU. Separately. Yeah. Um, I just wonder if you had any reflections on, on, on the current goings on well, Northern Ireland was always going to be an issue because um, it's got a land border with the Republic of Ireland. And for years, that, as you know, was um, very contentious. And following the Good Friday Agreement, the, the border between the North and South became almost uh, invisible. Uh, and it was an arbitrary border when it was British count counties and a uh, long time ago and then it became so it sort of literally ran through people's front rooms in some places but it was always going to be a problem with the republic of ireland in the single market um and northern ireland not um and boris johnson signed up to the treaty he signed up to the northern ireland protocol and now he's saying he wants to renegotiate it. It was a mistake. He didn't realise what he was signing or he didn't read what he was signing. And that's plausible with, with um, Boris Johnson as prime minister. So it's going to take a while to sort out. Uh, and we've got to work with the other countries in the European Union to make it work. And I think it probably, and this is going off on a tangent, if you like, but I think it probably um, brings the date of a united Ireland somewhat closer and because people in the north will find that um, the south is economy is doing better and it'll be easier to be aligned with that than be aligned with Great Britain. But we'll see. We'll see on that. So do you think that it was a mistake by people who voted to remain and not just voted, but actively vocally supported remain? Should they have supported a softer Brexit. So once the referendum had happened, accepted it, mm. rather than uh, pushing for a second referendum, should they have accepted and pushed for a softer Brexit to counter some of the issues that you've talked about? 
Well, that's a very good what if question. And uh, looking back or with hindsight, had Labour swung behind one of Theresa May's proposals, we'd have had a much softer Brexit. And if it had gone through the House of Commons, the Conservative Party would probably have split on that. But at the time, Labour didn't believe that was right for the country uh, and didn't believe that Brexit was right for the country. And I think we've been probably proven correct on that and we're still harbouring the not unrealistic idea that we should let the people know fully what was going on. And um, as you know, we campaigned perhaps foolishly for a, for a second referendum just to, to confirm it with people. Well, should we have accepted the softer Brexit? Well, probably we should have done with the benefit of hindsight, but with the benefit of hindsight, well, you know, we didn't really know um, that, or we didn't realise that Boris Johnson was going to push through blindly on a very hard Brexit without fully understanding or fully uh, comprehending the consequences of it, which I think are coming home to roost now. Thank you very much for taking the time to, uh, to join us. This has been the No Man's Land podcast, and thank you and goodbye.